You're listening to 20 Minute Topic, I'm Marcus Stead, and I'm joined as usual by Greg Lance Watkins. Inevitably, the upcoming general election is going to dominate our podcasts today and in the weeks ahead. On Friday of last week, Nigel Farage launched the Brexit Party's election campaign, where he said that if Boris Johnson doesn't ditch his deal with the EU, the Brexit Party could stand in every seat in the country. In this edition, Greg and I ask, is Nigel Farage an asset or a liability to Brexit? Greg, I think we should declare our interest from the start on this in that you and I both used to know Nigel Farage and we both fell out with him at different times in our own ways. But you and I, I think, reached very similar conclusions about him, his strengths and his weaknesses. And his biggest problem is his failure to acknowledge his weaknesses. And they are, as far as I'm concerned, his lack of attention to detail and understanding the issues fully he cannot be trusted with money and indeed that was proven because when he was um, in UKIP in the mid-2000s he was convicted of misusing party funds and his behaviour when he's under the influence of alcohol particularly with regards to women is less than impressive and you and I reached similar conclusions about his dictatorial behaviour his inability to delegate and his lack of a strategy and it's this lack of a strategy that all these years later has caught up with him again. I would agree with you. Um, I think one of the things that parted me uh, from uh, involvement with him, because although I was never a a UKIP member, um, I had quite a lot of dealings with UKIP and I had quite a lot of input to what Nigel Farage was doing on the basis that he was, at the time, apparently our only hope of getting what is now called Brexit. However, he probably did more to damage Brexit than to make it happen. Now, that's the conclusion I reached at the time. And and indeed, my resignation letter from UKIP, which was what, uh, late November, early December 2006, I put in that letter, which is still available on one of your websites, that he was doing more harm than good to the Eurosceptic movement. And I had various reasons for saying that. Um, The way he failed to develop UKIP into an effective force um, and the company he was keeping because UKIP was in alliance with some very strange characters in the independence and democracy group in the European Parliament, which I, I felt very uncomfortable with. He was mixing with some pretty uncomfortable characters in this country as well. And I felt that, yes, he is a good performing monkey on question time or in interviews and so forth. He is a good, solid media performer. But On all other issues, I found him a hindrance. And this is something I put in my resignation letter, and you reached a very similar conclusion. Um, Very much so. And the other thing that um, really put me off him in the long run, uh, there were two things. One, um, he made the mistake of many small men in that he would only have anywhere near him people who told him he was wonderful. Uh, Net result, he never got any critical input apart from possibly me. And even there, in the end, we parted company. Yeah, because this is the problem I had as well, in that um, I wanted to develop a a youth movement for UKIP. I was only in my early 20s at the time. I had some very clear ideas about how I thought it should be formed. I didn't even necessarily want to lead it. If, If people wanted to challenge me for that, that was fine by me. But I had clear ideas. 
and Nigel Farage fobbed me off on a number of occasions in various ways, saying, oh yes, we'll get this up and running. He had no intention of doing it, because I felt that in a way, even though I was not a direct threat to him at, what, 21, 22 years of age, whatever I was, but even delegating that little bit of power to set up a youth movement in the universities, in the colleges, and various other ideas I had in mind, he wasn't even willing to do that because anyone who gets near enough to him and poses a threat to him in any way, well, he does, I use the word threat there, maybe that's not the best word to use, but he perceived it as a threat and he couldn't handle that and he still can't, I don't think. Um, I, I would agree with you and you only need to look at some of the women with whom he was having affairs at any given time. His exploitation of overly young women who were classically unstable or with mental illness problems was really obscene to be aware of. Um, and I just couldn't put any trust in a man like this. Hmm. Same, um, same here. I, 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 felt, I felt the same way, yeah. Even if he was the answer, it wasn't an answer I was prepared to listen to. Hmm. Same, same here. Now, the reason we've put this into a historical context is because many of the same problems that existed in the mid-2000s, so far as Nigel Farage goes, still exist today. We look at the Brexit party and we wonder who is funding it and there's a murkiness about that. And we've also got the issue in the 2016 referendum. There is a reason why I and many other people, including you, kept our distance from the Leave.eu movement and Aaron Banks. There were Eurosceptics in the Conservative Labour Party, ex-UKIP people who aren't in any party, myself included, who deliberately stayed away from Leave.eu and Aaron Banks because we knew that there was a murkiness about him as well. And, OK, we've got this murkiness and this continues in the Brexit party. But beyond that, we again, we have seen, when was it now, on Thursday of uh, this week, Thursday or Friday, whenever it was, when the Brexit party had their launch Friday morning, it was in fact, that Nigel Farage's lack of attention to detail and lack of understanding of the process of Brexit, again, he's overplayed his hand and he's now jeopardising and potentially sabotaging the entire Brexit process. He doesn't understand Boris Johnson's deal. He doesn't understand the implications of a no-deal Brexit, the sort he's calling for. And I think his behaviour in potentially splitting the Eurosceptic vote, which is what he appears to be planning to do by standing in every constituency is now seriously undermining Brexit. I think that there are three very quick examples to give based on uh, the reasoning behind a lot of people who knew about him well, believing that actually, if he hadn't existed, the European Union would have had to have invented him because he was very vociferous in opposition to the European Union. But just to take three examples, one, along came uh, an Irish exceedingly wealthy man who was on a very good track to pulling Ireland out of the European Union and probably would have done it. But Nigel Farage latched onto him because of his money, tried to amalgamate with him and tried to take over his party, uh, which basically emasculated his efforts and he walked off into uh, the distance never to be seen again. Uh, secondly, the Lisbon, well, the new constitution for the European Union came along and it was 
voted down by Holland, voted down by France, voted down by Ireland. In fact, not a single country voted in its favour, with several voting quite clearly against it. And everyone in UK, everyone I say, almost everybody in UKIP was saying, uh, we must oppose this constitution. And Nigel Farage went out of his way to avoid opposing it. He did absolutely nothing. Eventually, the European Union saw it was in trouble on it, and it had been the event on which Britain could have been out of the European Union much, much earlier. So we're talking the late 2000s now? Well, we're talking of the new European constitution. With Giscard d'Estaing's EU constitution. And they they then um, decided to rerun votes in various countries and reword the constitution when, in fact, all they did was change the type size and some of the phraseology and rename it the Lisbon Treaty, a much shorter document because it was in a smaller... point size, not because it had less words. Yeah, and that's also how um, the Conservative Party peddled back on its its pledge to offer a referendum on it at that stage. And also, I recall even Uh, Labour was talking about it, but said the name change from EU Constitution to Lisbon Treaty um, was enough for them to backtrack on that pledge. You said there was a third point you wanted to make on this. Well, the the third one was having obviously not wanted to upset the European Union by having a proper campaign against their constitution. He then did much the same all over again when Britain was working to get a referendum. He did a great deal of sabotage on the efforts to get uh, a petition before Parliament. Um, He condemned it out of hand. He condemned the idea of a referendum. He even went so far as to be in very close and, in my opinion, um, criminal connection with individuals in Nikki Sinclair's office to frame her, to stop her producing the petition, which um, did not deter her. She went on and got quarter of a million signatures for a petition which then led to a debate in the House of Commons, which was the first major occasion on which David Cameron was defeated. And that was on the issue of an in-out referendum. And it was because of that uh, that at the next election, uh, the Conservative Party included a promise of a referendum. Yeah, and Nikki Sinclair's efforts, again, this is an example. Nikki Sinclair was originally elected as a UKIP MEP. Indeed, I met her at conferences once or twice. And there's always a new batch of UKIP MEPs who are elected in every cycle of European parliamentary elections. And it was always only a matter of time, normally not that long a period of time, before Nigel Farage would start falling out with quite significant batches of those who'd been elected on a UKIP ticket to the European Parliament because he saw them as a threat. But to bring the story up to date, um, what we witnessed this week, to me, what Nigel Farage did in the Brexit Party campaign launch for the upcoming general election was put his own ego before the national interest. Now, I'm well aware that Boris Johnson's deal that he's negotiated with the EU is far from perfect, 
Um, but it's essentially Theresa May's deal with bells on. But there is enough there, I believe, for there to be an orderly Brexit and things that can be tidied up at a later date from outside of the tent. And we heard uh, President Trump on um, Nigel Farage's LBC show calling for Farage and Boris Johnson to form an alliance of some sort. Well, that is out of the question, as indeed is a formal pact between the Brexit Party and the Conservatives. That if the Brexit Party fields candidates in the approximately 247 Conservative seats that voted leave, which now looks a lot more likely than it did a few days ago, there's a very real possibility that the Leave vote will be split down the middle and a Remain candidate, either from Labour or the Liberal Democrats, will take the seat. And the general election campaign is unpredictable on so many levels. Um, Bookmakers' odds are as good an indicator as opinion polls. And right now they seem to be saying we're heading towards a hung parliament, though there'll be a lot of water under the bridge between now and polling day. And Brexit is going to dominate this election, no, how, no matter how much we might want to turn it into a debate about public services. And there are two key questions, I think. The first is, to what extent the Brexit supporters, particularly those who would consider voting Conservative, blame Boris Johnson for not delivering Brexit by the 31st of October? And the evidence seems to suggest at the moment that voters have judged this as Boris Johnson having done his best by negotiating a deal and they have concluded that others, namely MPs from other parties and indeed some from the Conservative Party, that are to blame for preventing the UK's departure on the 31st of October. And on Tuesday in the House of Commons, we had the sight of Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, Lib Dem leader Joe Swinson and the SNP's leader in Westminster, Ian Blackford, all saying, we can't trust Boris Johnson. He's broken his promise on Brexit. Well, the Brexit voters don't seem to have been taken in by that line. They have concluded, rightly in my view, that it's the opposition parties and indeed some in the Conservatives who have prevented Boris Johnson from honouring his promise to take Britain out of the European Union by the 31st of October. And the second key question is to what extent the Labour supporters who voted for Brexit want to punish their party in the election. And Professor Chris Hanratty's research estimates that of the seats Labour held at the time of the 2016 Brexit referendum, 148 voted leave and 84 voted remain. And the bulk of those seats that voted leave are in Labour's heartlands, the former mining towns of Yorkshire, Durham, the South Wales Valleys, the old mill towns of Lancashire, the industrial Midlands, seats they would normally expect to hold as a matter of routine. But there are signs those old loyalties are breaking down and Nigel Farage has played his hand completely incorrectly on this as far as I can see. Because what he could have done is focused on those areas where the Conservative brand is a toxic brand, where he could have really broken down the Labour vote. Instead, he's he's completely overplaying his hand and he risks doing enormous damage as a result. Well, I would go as far as to say that there isn't such a thing as a Brexit party. Uh, we have an, a re-emergence of the Farage cult. Um, nobody knows of any of the other people in Brexit, uh, in the Brexit party. They're all irrelevancies, despite the fact that um, they got a number elected to the European Parliament as MEPs. Nobody's heard anything of consequence from them since. Um, there's no personalities there except the odd personality who is known for having been very much a has-been in the Tory party and is still looking for a political role. 
usually on an ego basis. And as a result, Nigel Farage does look once again to be one of Britain's worst enemies, in fact. Although it was Corbyn and the SNP and a ragtag of uh, defaulting Tories who forced Boris Johnson into a position where he could not honour his promise, because there's no doubt he tried very hard to, and it wasn't him breaking it. It was the opposition, together with uh, that odious little man, John Burko, manipulating Parliament that prevented Boris from getting his deal through. A deal that was far from ideal, but one has to take uh, the basic understanding of politics which is it's the pragmatic art of the possible, um, not fulfilment of a Christmas wish list, uh, as the Labour Party would seem to think. Um, and Nigel Farage has come along and he is perpetuating the myth that Boris Johnson has failed to honour his promise. Uh, and he's doing it out of totally egotistic personal aims. Nigel Farage was always going to say when Boris Johnson returned with a deal that the deal was terrible and was unacceptable to him. He was always going to say that because if he hadn't have said that, Nigel Farage would have made himself irrelevant and he's more interested in himself than the national interest. I think he's shown that much. If you were to summarise then, what is wrong with this deal? And be blunt about that, but then say to people who may be tempted even now after listening to this podcast, to support the Brexit party, why they should not do so? Well, personally, the deal doesn't get us totally dissociated from Europe immediately. Personally, I would love to see an absolute deal. However, an absolute deal that is being advocated by the extremists like Brexit party brings with it more harm than good because it leaves us in a position where the European Union can rightly turn around and say we're not going to let Britain do this that and the other and it's not our fault they wouldn't negotiate. At the moment with Boris's construct uh, yes we have lost some advantages. We are still involved with the European Union. We are still in a bit of a muddle over Northern Ireland, but we're going to be in a muddle over Northern Ireland, whatever the solution is, because Northern Ireland has basically, through the mythology of Irish politics, been a muddle since Cromwell's days. And we'll continue to be a muddle, and we're trying to work our way through with an equitable balance that keeps everyone happy. We're never going to achieve that because you can't make all of the people happy all of the time. But Boris Johnson's deal was the closest we are going to be able to get unless we're prepared to have all-out war with the European Union, uh, hopefully in negotiating terms only and not in hard terms, where we can leave we can make our own laws where we can make trade deals around the world, where we still manage to import and export 
to the European Union without drawing blood on either side. I think Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party could be the stumbling block that leaves us tied to the European Union in a negotiating term for the next 20 years or until it collapses, which I believe will be in seven to ten years. It looks very much as though Mr Farage is putting his own ego and self-importance before the national interest. I have a feeling we're going to be coming back to this subject in the weeks ahead. My thanks as always to Greg and my thanks to you for listening. See you next week.